get rambling. Wait a minute. Who did throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink? Why not? You don't tip. It was at this moment when we're supposed to realize that Mr. Orange was indeed the rat in the heist. But we're getting ahead of ourselves at this moment. Let's first begin this episode. Boys and gals, welcome to the Films Unchained podcast. And as you know, this is where the breakdowns, movie analysis, and film talks take place. And right here, we're going to talk about a Quentin Tarantino classic that started all. Reservoir Dogs, celebrating its 30th anniversary in 2022. Welcome to the fourth episode of the second season here on Films Unchained Podcast. We're going to dive into the first Quentin Tarantino movie, Reservoir Dogs. This is the first time I talk about Tarantino in this podcast. However, this is the second time I talk about his movies since I talked about his 2019 Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on Take 97, a film podcast with the man and the draw, David Ingram. I'm a fan of his work and that's why I have his ultimate movie collection since 2015. He writes produces and directs his films, especially his debut, Reservoir Dogs. Starring himself, Harvey Cattell, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, and Steve Buscemi, with Chris Penn, Lawrence Tierney, and Edward Bunker. That's how he defines the Reservoir Dogs. I still can't understand where the name came from. Quentin Tarantino says, and I quote, It's about a bunch of guys who plan to do robbery, and everything that can go wrong, goes wrong. But the promotional posters for this film says, Five strangers team up for the perfect crime. But there are six. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Pink. It is possible to say five instead of six, as Mr. Orange, being an undercover cop, would already know who the others are. The poster spoiled the story on its own. So at this point, you're expecting spoilers in this movie. I really hate mentioning every now and then that we're spoiling the film, but it is what it is, and I'm going to stop it completely. As most of the time, we're going to first break down the story. Now, instead of talking about the plot in order, we're going to focus on the characters and what happened to them throughout the story while connecting them in the end. I'll try at least. But anyways, let's get to it. So, Joe and his son, Nice Guy Eddie, plan a diamond heist, and they recruit from their perspectives the best men for the job, giving them code names to hide their identities to each other for protection, especially from rats or cops. So we got Mr. Blonde, Vic Vega, smooth, sadistic, cocky member of the gang. It's known that he's related to Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction, which we'll get to that later. Vic is loyal to Joe and his son, Nice Guy Eddie. He could have avoided prison by informing the cops on Joe, but he served four years in prison for keeping his mouth shut to protect them. Even though he is loyal, Vic is the most violent out of all as he enjoys killing people, where he mentioned that he killed innocent civilians and we saw what he did to the cop Nash after kidnapping him in the warehouse. He would have made out alive if he didn't continue to torture the cop in the infamous torture scene, and he got shot by... Mr. Orange, real name Freddy, the rat, the undercover cop, to capture the Joe gang and stop the entire heist operation. However, things did not go his way. 
things went out of hand during the operation with the shootings happening, especially when he got shot in the stomach, losing a lot of blood. But he was always protected by Mr. White, the eldest of Joe's heist team. He is close to Mr. Orange to reveal his real name, Larry, and did whatever it takes to protect Mr. Orange, even to the point of shooting his old friend Joe and nice guy Eddie in a Mexican standoff, and he's known them for years. All went down in the standoff just for Mr. Orange. But the sweet bitter tragedy is when he shot Mr. Orange after he informed him that he indeed was a cop all along. Betraying his friendship, betraying his trust. Heartbroken and in agony, Mr. White shot Mr. Orange in front of the cops before the cops shot him. The entire mess went down to the last man standing and that is Mr. Pink. The only uninjured person who seemed to be the least participated criminal out of the alliance. Especially when he refuses to tip for the waitress until Joe made him to. When all went to chaos, he grabbed the stolen diamond and left the warehouse until the cops showed up. He was the last man standing, but some say he got shot by the police if you increase the volume in the final scene. Assuming that he did not stop running away. What am I missing? Oh yeah, Mr. Brown. He got shot by the police during the shootout as he was in the same car with Mr. White and Mr. Orange. And as for Mr. Blue, he's irrelevant to the entire heist and story. And this is the best way to summarize what transpired. Okay. Alright, alright. Now here is where we should take a short break to refresh our mind from the breakdown of Reservoir Dogs. What we're going to talk about next is analyzing important scenes in the film to see how Quentin reveals the characters and their positions in the story, while understanding the elements used like a piece of music or a quote that we all enjoy. The main ones are the infamous torture scene, the Mexican standoff, and the world's smallest violin. After the scene analysis, we then discuss the recognition and the influence of the film before concluding this episode. Anyways. Let's get back to it right now. Of the many things he's great at, Quentin is known for making memorable, important scenes in his career and possibly filmmaking. With Inglorious Bastards encounter between Monsieur Lapadite and Hans Landa and the Sicilian scene in True Romance. Reservoir Dogs have great, memorable scenes as well. And mind you, this was the beginning of his career. Breaking down the first scene is, Mr. Pink doesn't tip. Because the scene really foreshadows two characters, to be specific, Mr. Pink and Mr. Orange. While everyone pitches in for tipping the waitress, Mr. Pink didn't because he, in his words, doesn't believe in tipping. And I can see where he comes from, especially talking about how the society goes, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over there. And what I like about the scene the, when he did the gesture of the world's smallest violin, I can still see it in different moments in shows, in cartoons, movies, basically being influenced by it, such as in AEW, uh, All Elite Wrestling, Eddie Kingston does the same hand gesture but referring to his patience instead of tipping. But that's not my point in the scene. Here we see Mr. Pink does not participate with what the team is doing and that is tipping the waitress. And we saw that throughout the story uh, about him not basically agreeing with the team. When Joe named everyone by their code name, Steve Buscemi did not like to be named Mr. Pink for the reason we all heard from him. He wanted to be named differently like Mr. Purple or taking Tarantino's name, Mr. Brown. But he had to shut up and take it because he got on Joe's nurse. 
And what about the ending? He did not stop the Mexican standoff, and when they all got shot and went down, Mr. Pink took the briefcase and ran away. By the character in the team, Mr. Pink is the weakest and does not do what the team is supposed to do together, except he followed the order of not revealing his identity, so I have to give him that. I thought he was the rats. Now as for Mr. Orange, he snitched to Joe that Mr. Pink didn't tip for the waitress. Foreshadowing that he is indeed the cop in the heist. On one hand, it's being loyal to the group in the scene, but on the other hand, it's betraying your partner or teammate of with what he does, did, or even do. Even though he's a cop, he still tipped and did not complain to Joe about his code name, Mr. Orange. Next, we got the infamous torture scene, and that is my favorite scene of the movie. We got to see Mr. Blonde taking out his knife in front of a Thai cop, Nash, and Mr. Orange bleeding to death. And then he put on Stuck in the Middle with You from K. Billy's Super Sound of the 70s radio. And we got to see him dancing. Especially with the song being catchy and gets you dancing as well. You know, gets you grooving. And Once we get to the groove, then boom! Starts beating him up. Mr. Blonde cut Nash's ear off camera, and all we hear is the music and Nash's scream being mouth tape. That's all we needed to see for such violent scene. Now, we all knew that Mr. Blonde is going to brutally beat the hell out of a defenseless cop, but we chose to continue watching it just because the scene was made to be watchable. Adding the song Stuck in the Middle with You and the dancing didn't really, we don't call it romanticize the torture, Let's say it softened the fear for us of what is about to happen. The scene continues with Mr. Blonde torturing him, putting gasoline all over Nash to burn him alive. The scene really shows Madsen's character loving the violence he brings and puts out. He likes giving people slow death. Next thing you know, he got shot by Mr. Orange out of nowhere. We then knew that Mr. Orange was the cop all along. But we forgot all about him just because A, he was losing a lot of blood and he's defenseless, and B, we focused a lot on the torture scene between Nash and Mr. Blonde. It became one of the best Quentin Tarantino scenes. That's all I have for this scene before we move on to the final memorable important scene, and that is the Mexican standoff. Not just the standoff between Mr. White, Nice Guy Eddie, and Joe, but how it led to it. When Mr. White, Mr. Pink, and Eddie came to aid Mr. Orange and saw the mess from the torture scene, things didn't add up for Nice Guy Eddie, even to the point of shooting Nash. Nice Guy Eddie was the most logical person in this scene. It was Chris Penn's moment to shine. Mr. Orange says that Mr. Blonde went crazy trying to kill him and the cop, so he shot him for self-defense. But Nice Guy Eddie didn't buy that self-defense story. He says that Blonde kept his mouth shut from exposing Joe and the entire operation that led to him being in prison for four years. He stayed in prison for Joe and Eddie and never made a deal to walk out. It didn't make sense for Eddie that Mr. Blonde could rip everyone off, especially that he's his best friend. I was skeptical that Eddie would shoot Mr. Orange in front of everyone until Joe came about out of nowhere and just led to the Mexican standoff. 
But it also led to a few questions. What was Joe's proof on Mr. Orange being the cop? How did the cops find them in the warehouse? Did Joe lead them to the warehouse? To this day, I still don't know how it led to that. And why did Mr. Pink stop all of this? He was the one who said we're supposed to be professionals, but after the Mexican standoff, he just took the diamond and ran away. And I realized that none of the team members were professionals. And that's all I have for important scenes. Reservoir Dogs was inspired by Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, another heist film. It was actually the first Kubrick film, and it was basically an important moment for him that led to Paths of Glory, Spartacus, you know the rest of the history. The code color names for the team, such as Mr. White and Mr. Brown, was inspired by 1974 crime drama The Taking of Pelham 123. And the infamous torture scene was actually inspired by 1966 Django where the officer was being tortured in the chair. Now, a lot of people say that he's basically plagiarizing, but Quentin Tarantino is known for loving to pay homage and tribute to past and classic films. We saw that with Jackie Brown's opening scene to The Graduate and Pulp Fiction's twists dancing scene to 1963's Eight and a Half. Harvey Cattell believed in the script and helped Tarantino along the way to get this movie going. And the really nice story was that when he wrote the script he gave it to a uh, family friend and that family friend knew someone who knew Harvey Cattell and the rest was history. Harvey Cattell even paid out of his own pocket for Tarantino to fly to New York and hold auditions there instead of LA because that's where they needed to be. Pretty much Harvey Cattell opened doors for Quentin Tarantino. The film was on tight budget though for production and casting to the point where some of the cast brought their own suits for the roles, even like it's just black pants instead of like a full suit. Also, the heist itself was never shown in the movie because of the budget. But still, Reservoir Dogs was influential. It was a milestone for independent filmmaking with Quentin marking his debut as a director. The movie was well received after its release, mostly recognized in England where they loved heist movies in that time. Or they still do, unless uh, things change. Two years later, Quentin's second movie, the cult classic Pulp Fiction, got released, and the rest, as they say, was history. This would never happen if it wasn't for Harvey Cattell, who was also in the film as Mr. Wolf. The movie gave Michael Madsen, Steve Buscemi, and Tim Roth a moment to shine to kick off their career. Roth continued to appear in Quentin's movies in the likes of Pulp Fiction and The Hateful Eight, whereas Madsen appeared in Kill Bill but also appeared in The Hateful Eight. Speaking of Madsen, apparently Quentin Tarantino pitched an idea for a story about the Vega brothers, where you would have seen John Travolta and Michael Madsen in one picture. But the idea got scrapped because Madsen and Travolta were too old for the role. And we were robbed for such a crossover between Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but a graphic novel would work too, or even a book for that matter. This film really brought memorable scenes, as I mentioned, that became visual references and influence in TV shows, specifically three important scenes. The opening credits with the slow walk in the music and basically naming uh, the team members. 
The second is the world's smallest violent tick, as I mentioned earlier. And last but not least, the infamous torture scene with the song Stuck in the Middle with You. Even WatchMojos.com mentions the scene as well as either one of the most important Quentin Tarantino scenes or one of the most violent scenes. I can't remember that one. But we can't forget that this was Quentin Tarantino's first ever major picture as a director and writer. He was 29 years old when this film was released, coming from his old job at a video store in Manhattan Beach, California. Reservoir Dogs was a three and a half week writing project and not only became an immediate hit, but started the legendary career of this guy. What I learned about Tarantino is that even the first work of a writer and director can be a major immediate hit. We saw that with Ari Aster's first film, Hereditary. During that time, with minimum budget and schedule, Reservoir Dogs was a perfect debut for Tarantino and led to creating many films all the way to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with his own fictional brands like Red Apple Tobacco and Big Kahuna Burgers. His choice of music of the 60s and the 70s as soundtracks are ear-catching and makes his films watchable. Because of Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino opened doors for independent filmmaking to be relevant again, leading to seeing independent films such as Christopher Nolan's Memento and Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, which is our next movie to break down. So stay tuned for that. But either way, that concludes the episode breaking down Reservoir Dogs, the very first Quentin Tarantino movie, especially in this podcast. That was fun, and I can't wait to talk about more of his movies in the future. But don't forget to check out Take 97, a film podcast, as David and I broke down Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So technically speaking, this is the second time I'm ever talking about Quentin Tarantino's movies. If there is a movie in mind that you'd like us to break down on this podcast, shoot us a message on Instagram at FilmsUnchainedPod or our Twitter page at FilmsUnchainedP. They're in the description of this podcast, so you can find them there. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast. Make sure you check out our previous episodes if you haven't yet. Second season just covered movies like Spider-Man No Way Home, The Batman, and Parasites. Available on all podcast platforms, including Anchor and Spotify. Also, some of our episodes are already available on our YouTube channel. So give us a like on our videos and subscribe to our page. And we will see you next time on Films Unchained Podcast. The place filled with breakdowns, movie analysis, and film talks, as the radio guy said so. And let's fade away with this cool podcast theme composed by none other than Tim and Paul of the Good Times with Bad Movies. Super sounds of the podcast. See you then, everyone. Bye.